0: The Future Proof Podcast
1: from News Talk,
2: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag Believe in Science. Hello, and welcome
1: to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCray. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can email us science at newstalk.com. We're on Twitter at News Science, or you can text us for 30 cent, 53106. We get all those comments in the podcast. Uh, find it in the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Uh, On this week's programme, exactly how good and conversely how bad are deep fakes? First though, it's time to look back at the week's science news as we do every week. Joining us uh, via the internet is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland, and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome, our first story. I think
0: after first game, maybe he don't like fight. He like play
1: slowly. So it's
0: why uh, begin the second game, I fight do mistakes sometimes but i lose all my game alpha go one five nil which is the first time ever um, a program has beaten a professional player
1: shane is is a revisit from our old friend deep mind who uh listeners may remember managed to be very good at various games starting off with go and and then into various computer games it's now a very good. Um, AI system at learning new environments and and mastering them what has it done now yeah
0: um I deep mind us makes me think of a bond villain for some reason but but it's yeah, not it's a, uh, this it's is a people name <laughs> it's part of of, of Google um, and uh, they yeah they have been working on games they've also been uh, being able to help with weather forecasts and disease treatments but a paper published just this week in nature has shown that uh, DeepMind has teamed up with uh, mathematicians in order to offer them new insights into old problems and, indeed, to solve some of those problems. Um, and uh, it's, it's incredible. What it's offering is a new tool. Uh, and one of the mathematicians involved had this great line uh, in, in the newspaper I read, and it said, one might imagine that the work of a mathematician is rather dry and formulaic. In reality, it's completely different. Mathematicians inhabit a world of rich imagination, heuristics, and intuition. And I think that last part is the interesting bit. They need mm-hmm. somewhere to start with these problems. They need a they need like a, a a solid ground from which they can apply all of their capacity and tools. And that's what um, Deep Mind is providing here. It's been able to look at really complex. Uh, systems and to look for patterns at a speed that that humans wouldn't be able to do on their own and and from that it it suggests to the mathematicians places to start to solve problems and they looked at two particular problems and they were done by two different mathematicians in this paper one is on something called representation theory and um, they, they helped here to discover a new formula for a previously unsolved conjecture which is like a hypothesis but for maths. And the second is around the structure of knots, which I always think, like, you know, imagine if you thought you were going to spend your career working on knots, and then I started to think about, well, why would they do that? And of course, mathematicians use these rather abstract ideas uh, as, as simplified versions of reality, so, and that can be applied to more complex things, and like protein folding, for example. So yeah. um.
1: Yeah, these folded proteins are really important in in terms of figuring out how drugs are going to work and how um, molecules uh, interact with our our body. Um, uh, Folded proteins can be a problem in in certain diseases like uh, mad cow's disease. Uh, And so um, while, you know, it seems a bit, uh, like a waste of time when you hear that physicists have figured out how a ponytail bobs when you jog. Actually, the mathematics behind it is really important for for modeling other quirky systems um, that, that have similar characteristics. Yeah, um, absolutely. And- you
0: need to start with first principles and simplicity before you can add complexity. And that that's what they're doing here. Um, and this is but- only the first of many papers they're saying uh, from this uh,
1: use of Deep Mind. But one of the things I thought was really interesting, Shane, is that um, when DeepMind first spouted out um, some answers to to one of these problems, they were sort of dismissed as being wrong because it didn't make any sense. And that thing that you said, that intuition, sometimes you need to go against your intuition. It seems that DeepMind suggested something that was counterintuitive, but actually correct when it came to solving this problem, which which shows the power of AI um, and unbiased thinking if you can get it into, into AI. Yeah,
0: uh, of course, we do to be careful because we know that artificial intelligence can be biased because particularly around things when it comes to people, whoever's programming it, whoever's writing the algorithm can apply all their biases to it. Um, I think what's interesting, though, is an analogy I heard from Matt Aaron. Uh Liz Walsh told me once that having all of the data from your apps and from your, your various sources is part of the puzzle. But you do need to be a meteorologist to predict the weather. And it's your expertise at the end, that sense of being able to sniff out what to follow and what not, and to know when it works and when it doesn't work. That's
2: where the human
1: skill comes in. Right. Well, Ruth, our second story has to do with regenerative medicine.
2: That's right, Jonathan. I mean, scientists, and we've covered a lot in the show, have been working for years to come up with new ways to repair damaged organs. And really, the holy grail would be for organs to be able to repair themselves or regrow in situ with the patient's own cells. Uh, So to try and do this, what scientists have done is to try and mimic the kind of network of proteins and other molecules that surround and sort of support the cells and tissues in the body. It's sort of like a soup that sits around the cells in our bodies. It's called an extracellular matrix, and it's really important because it helps cells attach to each other and communicate with nearby cells. And and so what scientists have done over the last couple of years is they've tried to mimic that extracellular matrix using something called a hydrogel, which kind of is what it sounds like. It's a jelly like substance made mostly with water. But that hydrogel provides a kind of support and a scaffold that can go onto a damaged organ and sort of provide a structure that the cells can grow back in place. So we, um, we've
1: talked about these a, a bit. What happens if you've got damaged tissue, say for example, from a heart attack or or, or something um, where the the tissue hasn't got oxygen and, and the tissues actually died, if we if we put this hydrogel in place, it, it, what happens to that damaged tissue and, and if it's just surrounded by this hydrogel, does it just start growing again?
2: Well, the purpose of the hydrogel is sort of to provide this structure to actually get live cells to to start growing again or to move into the area and actually repair the injured organs. So that actually comes to the properties of what this what kind of properties does this material have to have? It has to be full of holes. It has to be porous in the right way with the right size holes so that it it allows cells to enter the area, grow and communicate with each other to actually make tissue, not just individual cells, but Mm -hmm. it also needs to be incredibly strong. Um, and just to talk from it, hydrogels are, are made of long chain-shaped molecules, which we call polymers. And if you think about these chains in this gel, they link together and, and they provide this mechanical strength by tangling all together and sticking together. So it's a bit like a bundle of tangled spaghetti all stuck together. And again, if you think about that spaghetti, I'm sure we've all had it in our kitchen after we've cooked too much, uh, and you pull it out of the the, the colander. The tangles make the hydrogels stronger and stretchier, but the noodles sticking together make the material more rigid. So, so it's all about getting the balance right and the right pore size in that material. And it's a really, really active area of research. Um, only last month, actually, in Galway, researchers in, in Curum, the, at the SFI Research Centre there, developed an injectable gel that if you if you inject it into the heart shortly after a heart attack could reduce the amount of scarring that happens there. And actually just last month in, in Harvard, scientists made an incredibly dense, strong hydrogel that might be useful for um, replacing things like ligaments and, and tendons. But, but the study this week is actually looking at an even more challenging area and that's trying to create an injectable gel that could go into a really fast, constantly moving area of the body like the heart or the vocal cords. And until now, there has not been an injectable material that's strong enough, that's also porous, that will stay there at that site. Um, And that's the work that was published this week by scientists from McGill University. So they've developed the first injectable hydrogel, which is incredibly strong and can stay in the area,
1: and, and so that means that they can use this in um, in areas where that strength is really important. Things like vocal cords or or muscles um, where, where if you don't have the strength and it just dissipates, um, uh, that's, that's really key.
2: Exactly. So they yeah. they tested their hydrogel in a special machine that mimicked the biomechanics of the vocal cords. And they found even vibrating at 120 times a second for over 6 million cycles, their biomaterial remained intact while other standard ones fragmented into pieces. So this is really exciting. It opens up an avenue to get injectable hydrogels in to stay in place. And as you say, maybe deliver drugs, new opportunities for tissue engineering, and maybe even creating artificial organs to develop drugs on. So really exciting new work from McGill.
1: And Shane, our third story has to do with DNA and storing data. This is a a story we've kind of covered many times on the programme, this really bizarre idea that because DNA is already storing 3 billion pairs of of information in our, in the human DNA, that that it also might be a good way to carry data.
0: Yeah, um, I think we in Ireland uh, can probably uh, say this is a real problem, as we see that there's a huge demand for us to store data. Um, we all think that's important stuff but for most of it is just cat videos right um like all the youtube stuff all of Your piles. Yeah, the files yeah podcasts for this program etc they're all up in the uh <laughs> it's, all <trash. laughs> it's all up there uh in the cloud which makes it think like it's somewhere up in the atmosphere it's not it's in data centers which many of which are in ireland and they're they're devilish to to uh, to keep cool and um, they all rely on using a rather sort of Primitive technology to store data, right? The magnetic tape, um, and we know that um, the demand for um, for that sort of material, which is silicon based, is going to far outseed exceed, uh, exceed supply very soon. Twenty forty, nature predicts. So we need a better way to store data that needs to be smaller in size, less energy demanding, and it needs to crucially be stable, right? Because people in a thousand years' time will want to listen back to future-proof. Um, and so <laughs> the holy grail here is DNA. Uh, because it is uh, um, it is the most uh, beautiful data storage system that uh, we could imagine, and, and nature has imagined it or has dreamt it up, and it relies on the bases that are in DNA—the A, G, C, and T—and they can be used. Um, they can be. Um, it can be written uh, to mimic the zeros and ones that we have in our traditional data storage uh, technology, and that's what Microsoft and the University of Washington have done and have published. And whilst it's, this is not the very first story of its type, what they've shown here is that they've been able to, to write the code at a speed. So if you're writing uh, something on your computer and then you want to store it, you don't want to wait three days for your file to save. That has to happen relatively quickly and it has to go up into the cloud quickly. So th- yeah. the speed at which it's written is important. And that's what uh, the new thing is in this story. It's the capacity for them to write and the the stored data really really quickly. Um, it is if this can work, and and they do say this is like not going to be around next year. But if this can work, that would mean no more data centers in the in the way that we know them. Um, it would it would be a quantum leap if you. That's a bad analogy for any physicist to give. It would be <laughs> a massive leap forward
1: in data storage. Fascinating stuff, Dr. Ruth Freeman and Dr. Shane Bergen. Thanks very much. Your thoughts on that, please. You can text us 53106, or you can email us, science at newstalk.com. Up next, the good, the bad, and the ugly of deep fakes. This is Future Proof on Newstalk. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you want to contact us on the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. Now, when we're online, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is perhaps no more acutely apparent than with deep fakes. One of the key effects of deep fakes in society is that it skews what is believable. We lose the ability to differentiate between authentic and fabricated news and content. So just how problematic are deep fakes and where do they begin? Well, Michael Grothaus is a novelist, journalist, and author of Trust No One Inside the World of Deep Fakes. He joins me now. Uh, Welcome to the program, Michael. Maybe start off by explaining what deep fakes are, if you don't mind, first.
3: Yeah, hi. Thank you for having me. Um, So a deep fake is any kind of media. Usually it is video, but it can also be audio um, or a combination of both. But it's any kind of media that has been manipulated by artificial intelligence to um, make somebody appear that they're doing something or saying something that they never actually
1: did or said. So, um, give us some high-profile examples of what you're talking about.
3: Sure. So, um, you know the the examples probably a lot of people are going to be familiar with if you've ever logged into onto YouTube and you've seen um, maybe a video of Tom Cruise playing Iron Man in a Marvel movie, which was <laughs> of course p- played by Robert Downey Jr. Or if you've seen Nicolas Cage, you know, uh, inserted into the Willy Wonka movie, those are deepfakes. So what what somebody has done is they've use, used software um, and the artificial intelligence built into that software takes one person's face and inserts it over another person's face in the video. But those those uh, those kind of fun celebrity deepfakes, uh, they're called fan casts. Those are the deepfakes that most people are familiar with, and and those are relatively harmless.
1: The, the earlier deepfakes, if I remember correctly, were, were a little bit crude because it was the idea of taking a bit of someone's face as it was and pasting it into uh, the, the skull of somebody else. Um, that technique and the, the technique of sophistication when it comes to developing um, deepfakes, that's, that's changed completely now, right? The ability to recreate videos um, that, that, that move and are very lifelike has, has really advanced quite some bit.
3: Absolutely, and that's why deepfakes are so scary because now, and again, this is artificial intelligence. Even though a, a human needs to use the application, you know, um, they tell they say, I want Tom Cruise's face over Robert Downey Jr.'s. You know, the, the AI does all the heavy lifting. And and why these deep fakes are so convincing is it just doesn't paste the face of Tom Cruise from, let's say, a Mission Impossible movie. Over Robert Downey Jr. What it actually does is recreate Tom Cruise's face on top of Robert Downey Jr.'s, but it keeps Robert Downey Jr.'s expressions and movements in the face. So it actually does look, you know, 100% authentic. Um, and, And it's really creepy that way.
1: How does it do that? How how can you, um, actually, John Travolta did a a movie with Nicolas Cage, mentioned Nicolas Cage called (laughs) Face Off, in which they did something very similar. It's almost as if the structure of the face is kept in terms of movement, but you sort of paste someone else's face on top of it, like a layer of someone's face on top of it. I'm not quite sure how that's built. Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, and I'm actually, I'm glad you mentioned
3: Face Off because, that that movie I, I believe it's from the nineties now, which just means yeah. I'm getting, getting old. But um, so in face off, they, they swapped their faces using traditional CGI techniques. So, you know, they you know they basically cut and paste somebody's face and then altered it using computer graphics. That is um, technically not a deep fake because it was not created with artificial intelligence. The, in enabled in, in order to do that in face off. They needed a team of incredibly skilled graphic artists, you know, people hmm. proficient in computer animation. The reason deepfakes are so powerful is because you don't need any artistic skill to create one because the AI is doing that. And how the AI creates a deepfake is first, let's say I wanted to deepfake you into uh, a video of, um, I don't know, let's say uh, a
1: vaccine. Yeah. Would yeah. A good one.
3: Yeah, so so what what if I want to deepfake you into that video? First, what I'm going to do is get a few thousand images of your face. Then I'm going to and, and those are going to be different image files. You know, each each um, image is a different photograph. Basically, I'm going to give those photographs of you to the deepfake software, and I'm going to say, "Hey, uh, study these photographs and then start recreating his face in this video." And that's what the deepfake software does. Um, it studies the photographs of you. It, it starts creating fake faces of you right away, and at first, those faces aren't going to be really convincing. They're not going to look much like you. But the more the artificial intelligence studies the photos, the better it gets at creating an authentic-looking face of you. And then it has no problem mapping your face onto another person, but keeping that person's expressions. So again, this is this is you know how it's different than you know face off and in, in computer graphics. Uh, that we've seen in Hollywood movies for years. It, there's no artistry or human hand in, involved. It's literally the artificial intelligence learning what you look like and then being able to recreate it.
1: So you said you know celebrity face swapping is, is a mostly benign use. What are the malign or malignant uses of this sort of technology?
3: Uh, so overwhelmingly, the, the bad uses of deep fake technology now is to create non-consensual pornography of people. Um, And this is where you take somebody's face and you insert it over the face of an actress in a pornographic video. And this started with uh, celebrities. So when people would download deepfake software, you know, they would have a favorite celebrity, um, you know, their crush, you know, uh, let's say it's Scarlett Johansson. So they would tell the deepfake software, hey, look at these images of Scarlett Johansson. Learn how to recreate her face and put her face into this pornographic video. And as soon as um, people started doing this, this happened in around 2017, websites exploded online just with communities dedicated to people making deep fake celebrity porn.
1: Are there deep fakers that have reputations in the same way as hackers have? Are there pseudonyms out there? And and are are they willing to do anything? I mean, did you get to to speak to anyone? Could I hire them to do a deepfake to take down my political opponent, for example?
3: You know, in these deepfake forums that uh, deepfakers hang out in, and, you know, they trade tips and everything like that on how to make better deepfakes, um, and, and it should be noted that these forms aren't only for making pornographic deepfakes. Deepfakers who make, you know, those fun fancast deepfakes on YouTube hang out there, too. But, um, you know, they, they do, you know, they do uh, build up a reputation and, you know, they have, uh, you know, usernames and, you know, some deepfakers are known as, you know, better than others. So this is a uh, deepfaking online in these forms. It is kind of a community where there is status involved. Now, now, for me personally, I've spoken to several um, deep fakers who make fake celebrity porn, and also deep fakers who make you know the fun fan cast videos we watch on YouTube, and even the deep fakers that make fake celebrity porn. Of the ones that I spoke to, they said they would not make deep fake, you know, to take down a political opponent or to um, try to sway an election. Now, you know. That doesn't mean no deep faker is going to do that. And, you know, of course, that is one of the biggest fears people have over deep fakes it could sway elections. You know, it could bring down political opponents.
1: You actually asked one of these deep fakers to make a video of yourself. Um, is that mm-hmm. possible? Can we see that online? Is it possible to see?
3: No. Um, so I deleted the deep fake <laughs> after, after he made it a man. Um, and, I, and I should note, you know, that. You know, that was a, a privilege I had that, you know, people that are deep faked into porn, they don't get that privilege. They don't say, hey, delete yeah. this. But yeah, um, so he, he made a deep fake of me. Um, he I told him I, I wanted I didn't want to know what it was going to be because I wanted I wanted to feel that, you know, dread and anxiety of seeing me doing something I didn't do, you know, um, like is like how other people that are in, put into deep fakes, you know, I wanted to feel that. Um, right. and, it was, and it was really, it was really um, unnerving. Um, he put me in a video of an armed robbery. And uh, it, it wasn't perfect, but it was good enough. And when I saw it, it really, it really chilled me to the bone. It, you know, it's unnerving. And I, I could see, you know, if you log in one day or online, you know, your Twitter feed, and you see a deep fake of yourself, or if a friend sends you, uh, you know, a deep fake via whatsapp message and be like, "What are you doing in this video? I you know it 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 could be it could be really anxiety inducing, very, very harmful to your mental health.
1: So there are uh, lengths to which people will go in politics to um to win. and we've seen this with um, Cambridge analytica, um, manipulation on social media, lies, and so on. My question is how, do we know these videos haven't been used already to influence uh, voter behavior outside of maybe um america or, or the english-speaking world um how, how do we know that this isn't already happening that people aren't already hiring deep fake artists to to smear someone um from from winning in an election
3: i well that, see that's that's a great question because Look, you 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 can never you can say something um, is a deep fake, you you know, but you can never say something with 100% certainty is not a deep fake. So it is I don't I haven't heard of a deep fake being used to sway an election yet. But again, we've got basically two really important elections coming up. We've got the 2020 midterms in America and then the 2024 presidential election in America. And I am worried about deepfakes in these two elections because the technology has gotten much more advanced since the previous elections. It's also become more widespread. So people have access to tools that are easier to use than ever to create these deepfakes. Um, but wait a and- second,
1: weren't there, weren't there videos used that were the, the authentic, that they'd been manipulated digitally? Who was it? Um...
3: Nancy Pelosi. You Nancy
1: Pelosi. Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: So that's, I was just about to mention that because that's why I'm so worried about deep fakes in the next two election cycles. Uh, in, in the run up to the 2020 election, there were several fake videos released online. Um, and one showed um, the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. She was the most powerful Democrat at the time. This was before Biden won. Um, it showed her speaking at an event where she sounded drunk and there were several other videos released in the run up to the election where um, you know Joe Biden was addressing a crowd and i believe he said hello florida in the video but all the signs in the video said he was in minnesota so it made it look like <clears throat> this guy didn't know where he was but those right. those aren't deep fakes those are what are called shallow fakes so those are videos edited with traditional editing techniques to misconstrue what is going on. Artificial intelligence is not used in those videos. But shallow fakes were everywhere in the run up to 2020. And that's why I'm really worried about the 2022 midterms and the 2024 presidential elections, because now everybody knows you don't need to create a shallow fake. You don't need to spend the time manually editing video. You can just have a deep fake AI do it for you and it will look so much more convincing because you could literally, with deep fakes, you could have them saying anything you want. You don't need to manipulate their existing audio.
1: Right. The flip side of this, of course, is that um, if you do get caught doing something bad, you could claim that it was a deep fake and get away with um, with it if, if these things become prolific enough. I mean, is, is it is it easy once you look at a video and you have the tools to deconstruct it and say, that's a deep fake?
3: Right now, it is easy-ish. Uh, because there are algorithms that can detect deepfake videos. But the problem is it's always a cat and mouse game. Because remember, you're dealing with an AI that can learn. So when an algorithm is able to detect, okay, well, we saw a little artifact in the video here. So this is a deepfake. The, The deepfake algorithm itself next time gets better at learning okay i need to correct this so i can fool the algorithm right so it's always a cat and mouse right. game and but what you're talking about too where people can now reasonably claim if a video is showing them doing something you know evil they could say hey that's not me that's a deep fake that is called the liar's dividend and it's going to be a big problem because now anybody can reasonably claim well if this if you have audio or video of me doing something wrong that's not actually me it's a fake video
1: Wow. Um, I mean, I I had heard about these and we've talked about them on the show. Actually, one of the winners of the BT Young Science uh, exhibition, which is a a huge science fair here in Ireland, he won a prize for creating an algorithm that was able to detect deep fakes with one tenth the amount of uh, processing power. Um, It just goes to show that this... um, this is a very real problem that, that people are taking very seriously. The book is called Trust No One. The author is Michael Grotas. Michael, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. You can see some of those deep fakes, not the adult ones, up on our Twitter site. It's twitter.com forward slash Newstalk Science. It's kind of crazy to think that we're at a stage now where you could literally create any reality on, in, in, a, in a movie in a clip and it be convincing. Um, Aidan McKelvey, producer of the program, joins me to go through uh, your comments from last week. Uh, But before we do, Aidan, um, there was this story, I don't know if you heard about two years ago, um, there was a story of a a guy who worked, he was the head of the English version of this uh, um, global company. And uh, apparently, he was the subject of a deep fake scam in which scammers used AI to get a perfect synthesis of his voice, and then they rang up the global head and asked um, him to transfer money urgently. And because it was his his perfect voice with perfect syntax, and uh, he knew this person well, and they managed to fake the conversation through AI. The guy transferred uh, two hundred thousand pounds and um, didn't think about it because he knew the the voice at the end of the phone. Like that's that's just with voice, and obviously voice is easier to do. But like it's not far until we'll be watching clips and we we it'll, we need to go and verify: is this true? Did this really
0: happen?
4: <laughs> yeah, but it, it's actually I remember when we maybe first mentioned technology like this. I'm not sure if it was deepfakes exactly, but. You know, over over the years on Newsround, maybe five or six years ago, we would have started hearing things about this sort of thing. And I remember being, like, really worried about it, thinking, like, this is kind of the, this turns us into uh, 19, George Orwell's 1984. And then something happened around the time of uh, Brexit and Trump being elected, where people just started believing the opposite of the reality in front of their eyes anyway, where yeah. somebody would say something and then say, um, I didn't say that. Or a classic example would be uh, Donald Trump <laughs> saying, um, "No one respects women more than I do," um, which you know it's grand. It's grand to say that maybe he, he wants to defend himself and say, "I respect women," but come on. <laughs> no, like, but it's, it's a gaslighting thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that happened, and then it just—it's like already the toothpaste is out of the or is out of the tube, you know. Yeah. And I—I I don't think there's this makes it worse, yeah, but there's no way of putting that situation back together again. Mm. And the only way I see out of it, and I'm I'm always harping on about this, is that, uh, you know, philosophy, logic, uh, just consider that everything in front of you needs to be verified or at least have, like, make rational sense to you. And you might want to just look at one other source just to be sure, even if it's something you're like, that's probably true.
1: Yeah. So your comments from last week, we were speaking about sounds that we listen to and what sounds have an effect on us and why. And and someone says, I have to listen to a loud blizzard sound to sleep. It's funny that, isn't it? Like, you'd think that you, you want quiet, but actually, you know, the sound of uh, Hoover is soothing to some people, just sort of white noise. I think it goes to, like, your time in the womb, where all the all the noise of the world is sort of muffled and, and uh, it's got sort of a filter on it that makes it all, which is why people enjoy those sort of white noise sounds to sleep. We were talking about how many steps people did for, um because uh, we were we found out last week that 10,000 is actually probably too many. Uh, 7,000 will do you. Um a 67-year-old has texted in saying I do from 7 to 8,000 steps a day for 30 years it didn't stop me having heart valve surgery last year. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm glad to hear you're around to text the show. So thanks for that. And another Dominic from Cove says, Hi, Jonathan. I do a minimum of 7,000 steps walking four to five days a week. It takes about an hour per walk. I'm in my 70s and I've reduced my minimum from 8,000 steps per day. It seems to have a positive effect on my health. Um, That's it, Dominic. And often when I get out of the house, um, it has a positive effect on my wife's health too. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Magella said, can you please send that interview on sound to all those restaurants who insist on bombarding our systems with discordant jazz? I've taken asking new restaurant what music will they play when I'm making a reservation? I just can't relax with that noise in the background. Majella, I, I just don't get it. I don't get why someone would would create that other thing for your brain to have to listen to. It really needs to complement the mood because if it doesn't, it's hell. I totally agree. One of the ones I hate is, is I think I said it in the interview—is that wine you get from fridges, you know, <laughs> the fluorescent yeah. whine just does my head in. And I—I I often ask if I'm sitting near a, a wine fridge or something, or I'm quite close to, to you know, some sort of whirring noise. I'll—I'll I'll ask to be moved, and Dara gets really annoyed and embarrassed, and like, oh for God's sake, and, and rolls her <laughs> eyes. At the waiter, rather than siding with the man she chose to spend her whole (laughs) life with. We were talking about synthetic blood uh, last week. Absolutely amazing work by Professor Doctor, uh, who says that um, we may soon be able to synthesize this magic liquid that flows through our veins. Uh, David Bradley says, these things do keep coming around. I think I first wrote about synthetic blood in 1991. Yeah, but like that doesn't give you like... I'm sure people thought of it before you, David. This guy's actually making it. Like, but but I suppose there is a circle of news and ideas. I, I'll give you that. But um, I don't. You don't get too much credit. Too much credit for for writing about it, no matter how long ago it was. Colm says, I've owned negative blood and regularly donate. The Irish Blood Transfusion Service ring every three months or so to remind me to donate, but also to say which day to attend as they want mine specifically for a neonatal or perinatal transfusion as they don't know a baby's blood type. Makes me feel pretty special. Well, Colm, you know what? That is a proper service you do to the world. I would say you don't have to tip anyone else. You know, like If you're going to a restaurant, don't feel like you have to tip. You've done your service (laughs) to humanity (laughs) is done in that one thing. Right. And I'm just I'm laughing at the and now you've completed your worst
4: customer ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, man, I tell you one thing I do is I feel bad. By the time that the the mints come, I feel bad and I tip good. And and if you've ever been served, if you ever served me in a restaurant, you will know I tip well. That's it, I I suppose, for this week's um, future brief. Is there anything else? No, no, I think you've done yeah, quite enough it. damage <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's programme A Producer Aidan McKelvey Simon Keane, Garrett Mahal JJ Clark and Jojo Cardozo on sound Round out, a fantastic production team I think you'll agree That's it for, for this um, week's episode In the meantime, stay curious mm-hmm.